Mike Cohen, welcome to my podcast. And this is part of a special series that I started a few weeks ago as uh, I uh, campaigned for re-election in Cote St. Luke District 2, going door to door pretty much every night. Uh, and uh, even when there's not an election, I pretty much go to all the doors and so many notable, interesting constituents. And everybody likes to hear from a doctor. And uh, one of my very interesting constituents, we speak all the time, uh, is Dr. Gerald Rappaport, who's a family physician uh, at the DeSalle Medical Center, which is at the Cary Square. Uh, welcome, Dr. Rappaport. Well, thank you. And, and, you, and you, I'm only two doors away from you, so you, you didn't have to go very far on your canvassing to talk no, to me. No, and I can tell you, having a doctor two doors away has been a savior for me in certain times since you've lived here. You've been very generous when uh, I've had an issue, uh, and uh, very thorough, by the way, when, I, when I've gone to be examined by you. And maybe I can start off with that. You are very thorough. You, you've got a very good way with patients. Uh, you relax them, but you're very thorough in terms of taking your notes, getting the family history. That's, is that very important for you? Well, you know, um, every doctor is, uh, their, their nightmare is to make a mistake okay? because we're not playing games here. These are serious decisions and they're decisions that are not necessarily clear black and white decisions everything when we decide on what treatment we're going to do or where when I decide what I want to talk about with a patient I have to prioritize and make those decisions but in order to um, be able to make those decisions with the greatest amount of confidence and hopefully the least uh, amount of possibility of missing something is you have to adopt uh, a way of you know, covering all of the issues, even in a quick way, to make sure that uh, uh, that you haven't missed anything. I may, for instance, as part of my routine, ask somebody about uh, their breathing, and they may not have any. But they, you know, it may be that they came in because they're having, I don't know, uh, uh, another problem. They're having a headache, but. But uh, if I wouldn't, you know, ask about those things in, in, uh, in a rather uh, orderly way, uh, I might miss something. And uh, sometimes I'm surprised they go, by the way, and I realize that it's something that, that, that it, it offers me information, which helps me, again, to make the decisions as to what I'm going to discuss with the patient and what sort of treatment I might advise and, and what other questions I might ask. Well, you're an excellent doctor and you've got a great bedside manner. So tell me, how did you decide to become a doctor way back when, I guess? <laughs> well, it's a good question. Um, I, um, uh, I never much thought about it, but then I had some, some friends who were a few years older who were applying to medical school and they were, um, uh, and, you know, they said, you know, it seemed like a decent job. And uh, I certainly had a love of science and biology. Uh, you know, we had a um, uh, high school biology teacher, uh, name of Sorrel Namark, who uh, in Herzliya. And I think that she probably ended up sending, uh, giving uh, enough love of science and biology so that she might have been the trigger for, I don't know, maybe a hundred doctors who ended up getting their medical degree. I mean, I I have to say that uh, 
that she was the one who 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 started my love of science and then I just you know I never much thought about it and I said you know what let me give it a try let me let me see if they'll they'll take me and they did they I well I I I actually got involved in teaching the first CPR programs uh back when I was still in university and that allowed me to uh to meet the medical medical community and uh certainly facilitated my next step, which was to go into medical school. And and why become a family physician? And how much do you enjoy that type of job? Well, I didn't start off as a family physician. I started off as an emergency physician when emergency medicine was, that's where, and that was a, a, a kind of, I guess, from the CPR work that I was doing. Uh, I mean, I was, the, I gave the first class to non-medical personnel in Quebec. Um, the first uh, seat, because at that time they were worried that if you taught somebody CPR, it was enough of a, of a, um, uh, it was dangerous if you gave it to, if you let somebody who wasn't a doctor do it. And uh, it was clear that, uh, that certain places, Seattle, for instance, was teaching uh, lay people to do CPR. And uh, I decided to start teaching it uh, here in Montreal. And I gave my first course. I could tell you the exact date, the date of my first course that I uh, gave, uh, the first CPR course started on November 15th, 1976. And the reason I remember that was that was the night that the Parti Québécois was elected the first time and uh, nobody showed up for the class. (laughs) And so we had to do it for the the next day. And the next day I walked in and I was, I mean, I was very flustered because we had already kind of missed that first day. And, and I walked in and there were this group of people sitting there and I put my stuff down and I had my mannequin and all of these sorts of things. And I explained to them that uh, this is going to last uh, 15 hours, three hours for five nights. And then there's going to be, um, uh, so it'll be about five weeks. And, um, and then we'll have an exam and you'll get a certificate. And one lady <clears throat> put up her hand and said, five weeks, she says, I'm due in three. <laughs> and I realized that every woman in that room was at least, you know, seven months pregnant. Oh my, you could have I had accidentally walked into a maternity class and started teaching them there. So, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But so, but become, do you, you enjoy, obviously, I know I can tell by seeing you, you enjoy being a family physician. You, you find it rewarding. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, it, it, I enjoy teaching and I enjoy communicating. And uh, I think uh, I've been given the privilege, uh, you know, in family. Well, I, I started in emergency medicine and did three years of emergency medicine. And, um, uh, frankly, I, I just found it to be that I never knew what happened to the patients. I never developed any relationships with the patients. It was all shooting from the hip. And, um, and you never knew whether you hit the target or not. I mean, right. you knew sometimes, but often you sent them off and you never knew that. So <clears throat> I decided to, um, uh, to uh, come back and do family medicine and uh, haven't regretted it for a day. So everything's changed for all of us since COVID. Uh, how has COVID affected you as a family physician in the last 18 months? Well, um, I think that uh, 
COVID has, uh, we were, um, up until um, COVID started, uh, the thought of um, treating a patient on the phone or through a video call um, was considered to be unprofessional because somehow you were offering them lesser of a service if they were not physically present for you to examine them. And uh, what COVID has shown me, and we, we basically switched to uh, the week as COVID was starting, I remember calling um, uh, one of the representatives for the medical association and saying, listen, are they going to allow us to start doing phone call consultations? And he, he said, they, uh, they never have, and, and I don't think they're about to start right now, okay, in terms of the authorities. And within a week, we were all doing telephone conversations and closed down. And what we found in the last year that it's certainly, and, and look, dentistry is very hard to do over the phone. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, there are certain things, but as far as family medicine is concerned, most of it is history taking, um, which are the questions and, you, and the thoroughness that you were talking about before. Uh, it's um, data management today in terms of being able to adequately have your finger on all of the different uh, pieces of information that might relate to the patient's um, case or screening or, or whatever, whether it's been done, whether it hasn't been done, medications. And it, what we found out is that certainly um, uh, the physical exam is probably far less important in 2021 than we thought it was. That's not to say that you have you you should be. You, it's one additional potential uh, mistake that you can make in terms of deciding who, it, 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 perhaps maybe 10 or 15 percent of the patients would benefit from a physical exam given a certain problem, but the other 85% not. And you have to be able to determine who is who. And uh, I'll tell you that as far as the patients are concerned, they for the most part love it because it'll, it, they still get their time and they don't have to donate two hours sitting in my waiting room waiting to see me. Right, right, right. So that's one thing of COVID. So what is your what is your thought now? Where are we headed with COVID in the years to come? Well, um, look, um, uh, we throughout our training knew that the next the, we've had a serious pandemic on the face of this globe on the average once every eighty five years, uh, as far back as we can uh, we can see. Uh, so it happens and it happens with regularity. We did, because it's only once, this time it was a little bit more than 85 years. It was a, a little over 100 years from the 1918 pandemic. But um, we've been seeing this over and over again. And uh, this is the first time that we've had a major pandemic where we actually knew what a virus was. 
where we were able to um, uh, know exactly what we were dealing with, where we were able to do a, a genetic examination of, uh, and, and, you know, back in 1918, they had no idea. It was, it was all shooting, really shooting from the hip. But here we were able, we, within two to three weeks, we had the genetic profile of the virus. And two to three weeks later, by the middle of last March, they had already um, um, uh, designed and started to produce that vaccine that has gone in all of our arms. Right, right. Okay, it took eight or nine months to uh, do the due diligence and make sure that it was safe. But the actual vaccine has not changed. That was that was ready back April of last year, and and we started testing them immediately. I think that that um, we have lost a lot of people. Uh, we the the we will end up. I mean, we will end up losing from COVID probably maybe half the number of people that we would normally have dying from all causes in the course of a year, at least the Americans probably, that's what they're going to end up with. We're running about half, thankfully, the mortality. And um, so it's not gonna affect our population in any great way. Uh, it's going to be, uh, a lot of people will remember the tragedies, but um, uh, the silver lining is, I think it's pushed um, uh, so much of our society ahead in terms of truly entering the 21st century and taking advantage of all the tools we have, whether it be uh, in medicine, the mRNA and the CRISPR technology, which will eventually probably help us cure diseases that we consider incurable today. And with, uh, in the same way that penicillin eventually cured pneumonia, which was a killer in, in, right. in the early days. Right. And, right. And, and I think it's changed our society for in many ways. And we will, um, we will be looking back on this from a medical point of view. We will be looking back on this as probably pushing medical science ahead, oh, at least five years in this Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah. so we have COVID. We also have the flu shot. Last year, there was, I don't know about you, but there was no, no one seemed to get the flu. Uh, are we going to have another season this year with no one getting the flu? And will, will doctors like yourself be able to administer the flu shot this year? Or again, they won't. Well, we, I mean, we've always been administering the flu shot. Uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to very quickly in, 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 uh, as we move forward, they will, they will, uh, now they're going to, we're going to be able to administer uh, COVID vaccinations or other mRNA vaccinations because the storage requirements are, are quickly changing. Um, and, uh, and even to the point of, of doctors being able with an injection or with a prescription uh, offer somebody who gets any uh, flu or the COVID the possibility of um, monoclonal antibody therapy, which would be now it requires an infusion for about 45 minutes. But theoretically, it could be done in as like an injection, just like a penicillin shot. And, and hopefully that will, I, I mean, all of these things will, as far as, as far as whether or not we're going to have a flu or why we didn't have a flu last year, well, it's, it makes sense because um, 
the flu is your classic respiratory illness. It's it's not an epidemic, but it's a pa- it, 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 it's not a pandemic. It's an epidemic. It's a, it's a seasonal recurrence, and and we lose a lot of older people to the flu. Um, but this past year, we realized that if you if people maintain their distance, wear masks, and and do the same social the same precautions that they've been doing for COVID. It virtually keeps the flu from ever. I mean, understand the difference between the flu and COVID is COVID was brand new. COVID was the new boy in town and none of our immune systems had ever seen it. So we were all fresh meat for COVID. And that's why it, it, it started to catch fire so quickly. Okay. It's what is called a novel virus. Okay. Um, uh, the flu virus is not novel virus. We all, most of us come into it having some level of immunity to it already. Okay. Right. Uh, if you'll think back to t- 2009 with H1N1, that was a sh- uh, enough of a shift. So that was considered to be a novel virus. That was considered to be a new strain of the flu, which people may not have had the uh, immunity to. Right. But not anything like a fresh virus like COVID, where, you know, there was, you know, in January of 2000, 0% of the population had any uh, natural antibodies to COVID. So right. that that's really why it was it, it was it, it took fire and is still on fire now with, unfortunately, amongst people who somehow don't trust science. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one last question to conclude, and that is you have a special medical anniversary coming up. Tell us about it. Well, uh, I don't want to say my age, but um, uh, it's just uh, by coincidence, uh, the medical school graduating class of 1981, uh, of which I am a member, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary. And uh, most of us still look just like we did when we graduated <laughs> medicine. So, uh, you know, it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really quite shocked at, at how, uh, how we've maintained our youth and vitality. And you wouldn't even have guessed it. You would have thought that we were just like residents or fresh graduates. Well, we know, Dr. Rappaport, that you're like a Doogie Hauser and you really started uh, as a young teenager. But uh, listen, uh, thank you very much for your time. Very interesting. And I'll continue this conversation with you in our courtyard. You take care, and uh, it's been it's been fun, and uh, good luck with the uh, with the election. Thank you, Doctor Rappaport. I appreciate it. Your chief physician for my campaign right now. <laughs> okay, you got All it. Right. Terrific. That was Doctor Gerald Rappaport.